Good morning again. Uh, it's, it's, it is great to be back. They say absence makes the heart grow fonder, and um, it's just a joy to be with you guys this morning and to be back at Covenant. Um, it was great to get away and um, take some time and rest, um, but it was also good to encourage other brothers and sisters, but it's, it's truly a joy to be back. So if you want to open up your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 8. We'll be finishing um, this series that we've called Christ in All the Scriptures. And what we've tried to do in this series, starting all the way back, it was a couple months ago, is really try to see the overarching story of the whole Bible. That it's not just a story about random people or moral tales, but it's all focused on the person and work of Christ. And that we've tried to see that the whole Bible, all the scriptures, is about Jesus and God's plan of salvation founded in him, the plan and purpose of God in eternity past, come to fulfillment in Christ, and now we are partakers of that. And we began all the way back, if you can remember, it's been a while, we began with the covenant of works in the garden. We began with that first covenant that God made with Adam, that even though Adam was perfect, He was not in the final state that God had planned for him, the state of glorification, eternal life. And we saw in the covenant of works in the garden that Adam was called to obey God perfectly. He was called to work, and if he did, he would earn eternal life and Sabbath rest with God forever. But as we know, he disobeyed God, he broke the covenant, he violated God's law, and he brought death and curse into all. This was the covenant of works that was broken in Adam. And this event that we call the fall followed after this, that all are now born in sin, that destruction and death is everywhere. And so the question at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, is how is God going to save his people? How is God going to bring about redemption? How is he going to make a way for sinful people to dwell with him forever? This was his plan from the beginning. How is he going to bring it about now that sin has come? And we see that he does this very on in the, early on in the scriptures in Genesis 3.15 with the promise of this covenant of grace, this promise of the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, that God is going to bring someone forth from a woman that is going to do everything that the first Adam failed to do. It's going to crush the head of the serpent and destroy death itself. And as we've gone through these covenants that happen after this, we looked at the Noahic covenant, this covenant of common grace that God will preserve his creation, that even though judgment is deserved of all people, immediately God will withhold his judgment until the final last day. We looked at the Abrahamic covenant that creates a people, the people of Israel, that will not only have a land and laws in the Mosaic covenant, but they are the ones that are going to bring forth the Messiah. We saw in the Mosaic Covenant the holiness that is required by which the people can enter into the temple. They need a perfect sacrificial substitute in order to be in God's holy presence. We looked last time at the Davidic Covenant, this covenant that God makes with David, that he will be given a king and that this people will build the temple, the house of God. And in each one of these covenants, we've seen that there's this sort of progressive unfolding, that the plan of God founded in Christ has come into clearer and clearer focus. And we've seen the echoes not only of the covenant of works in Adam, the need for obedience, but we've also seen the echoes and revealing of the covenant of grace that point forward to Christ the Messiah who is to come. 
And so what we're going to see today is the culmination of everything that's come before. Everything that was promised in the Old Testament is going to come to fulfillment, clear focus in Christ. That in His death and resurrection, in His sufferings and glory, He is going to accomplish redemption for His people, fully and finally. There's no more types, there's no more shadows. In the new covenant, in His blood, redemption will be accomplished. And in the pouring out of His Spirit, He's going to build His church made up of Jew and Gentile from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that this is why we can have assurance this morning. This is why we have hope that we read about in Hebrews chapter 6, that the types have fallen away, and that in Christ and in this new covenant of grace, we have the true fulfillment of all of God's saving purposes. That's what we're going to see this morning. So I'm going to read our passage. Then I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's Word. This is Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. The writer of the Hebrews says this, this is the Word of God. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since is it enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me." from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy and infallible word, your special revelation to us that you have given to us that we might know the gospel, that we might know Christ and your plan of redemption set forth from the beginning of the world till now. Um, We come this morning, Lord, as we see the culmination of all your saving purposes in Christ, and and we come as partakers of this new covenant, as members of this covenant that you have made. And we pray this morning that you would empower us by your Spirit to hear and understand and see the truths of your Word and the truth of Scripture, that it is not because of what we have done, it is not by our works that we have hope this morning, but it is because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray this morning that as we take an overview and look at really all of the Scriptures this morning, We ask and pray that you would strengthen us, that you would give us clear minds that we might see and understand and know that you are the only way. And we rest on that promise this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.
Amen. So if you remember last time, we kind of ended off with the Davidic covenant. We ended off with um, Solomon. If you remember, he's the son of David, the one that builds the first temple of the Lord. But it is shortly after that where the kingdom is thrown through a loop. It is divided. The people of Israel, the 12 tribes, once unified, have now been divided into the tribes, uh, the 10 tribes of Israel and to the two tribes of J- Benjamin and Judah. The kingdom is now divided because of this, the king's disobedience and the people's disobedience. And so it's important this morning, we talk about the first point this morning, is we look at the prophets. We see the prophets are those that come to the people bearing a message. They are bringers of the words of God. As we read in in um, Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. These prophets were people that brought the word of the Lord to the people. And if you go to the Old Testament prophets, you'll see this common theme through each one, that they are dual messengers. They've come to bring two messages to the people of the Old Covenant. The first thing that they do is they are God's covenant prosecutors. They are coming, rebuking the people of Israel for their disobedience, for their covenant breaking. They have violated the old or Mosaic covenant. We saw that in Jeremiah 51 and 31, as we read in Hebrews chapter 8. They did not continue in my covenant. So these prophets are coming to the people saying, you've broken the covenant. You've violated the covenant. And so because of that, you will be exiled or you will be cut off in some instances. And so the prophets are warning the people that this is going to happen because of their disobedience and their sin. But they don't just bring this message of, um, of condemnation. They also bring this promise of restoration. That's their second message. They bring this promise of restoration, this promise of this new covenant that in the latter days, in the last days, God will choose his people again. He will make a new covenant. And this covenant, as we read, will not be like the covenant in the Old Testament where obedience was a condition to receive the benefits, but this is one where God will do the work, where God will. And you've noticed that in our reading this morning, Hebrews chapter 8, which is mostly taken from Jeremiah 31. If you want to turn there with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, we'll see this contrast between the old covenants that said, you must do this. In Jeremiah 31, we see something very different. In verse 33, it says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Notice this language, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then he says at the end, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We see similar language in the prophet Ezekiel, another Old Testament prophet that promises this covenant of grace. He says this in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes. See the contrast there. It is God promising, I will do this. I will execute this. I will, I will, I will. 
And if you go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, we see the way that God is going to accomplish this. He promises it's going to be in the form of the sending of this servant. In Isaiah 42, we see that the prophet Isaiah promises that the one that's going to bring this covenant, the one that's going to do this work, is going to be this servant of the Lord. Isaiah 42 says this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. We might come back to that later. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice for the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. This servant of the Lord is going to be given the word and the spirit, and he is not only going to come and accomplish redemption, we find out in Isaiah 53, he's also going to suffer and he is going to be the one that accomplishes this redemption. So why do I bring this all up? This is the message of the prophets. They're bringing condemnation. They're saying, you've broken the covenant, but they're promising restoration. They're promising this new covenant that is to come, the servant of the Lord that's going to bring this covenant. And just to step back from that for one moment, what does this kind of remind you of? What does this kind of language remind us of? I think in many ways, we're brought back to the Garden of Eden in in some instances, right? There's been a covenant breaking. Just like Adam, the people have violated the covenant. They've broken the law, and because of that, they're being exiled. They're being cursed. They're being kicked out. Adam was kicked out of the garden. These people are being kicked out of the promised land. And in the same way, as there was a promise of grace in the, after the garden, we see in the prophets this promise of restoration, this promise of this covenant of grace. But this time, <laughs> there won't be any more types or shadows as there was in the Old Testament. This time, in the new covenant, it is God himself that is going to act. He himself is going to bring about the fulfillment that was promised in the Old Testament. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the new covenant. The new covenant. That when we come to the New Testament, we see that all of the promises that God had made, all the types and all the shadows of the, of the Old Testament are coming together in one person. It's this great convergence. <laughs> Everything that we've talked about in the Abrahamic covenant, in the Mosaic, in the Davidic, all these promises, the sacrifices, the shadows, they've come together in one person. And that in the fullness of time, God sends forth His Son. God sends forth His Son. The Son of God, the second person of the triune God, comes in the incarnation, taking flesh on Himself And he comes to accomplish all that God has promised. He comes to bring fulfillment. He comes to do everything that Adam failed to do. And not only will he accomplish this eternal redemption for his people, but he also comes to suffer the wrath and curse of God for their sin. This is what we see in the person and work of of Christ, that He has come, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the only begotten Son of God to be the one mediator between God and man, our prophet, priest, and king. What was promised in the Old Testament, Christ has come to fulfill. What was shown and pictured in the types and shadows of the Old Testament, Christ has come as the substance. What Adam and Israel failed to do over and over again, 
Christ will accomplish. And it is in this new covenant, in His blood, that redemption will be fully and finally accomplished. And what's amazing is, this is exactly what we see in the Scriptures. This is what we see in the New Testament. If you want to turn it to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. I've mentioned this verse several times throughout the series. It's so important that we see this as we're coming to the Bible, as we read our Scriptures. What's the first book, the first verse in the New Testament? When we open up our, our Bibles to the first verse in the New Testament, it says this, Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. <laughs> that the first thing we see when we come to the New Testament is that this Lord Jesus, the one who in his incarnation took on flesh, has come to not only be the promised seed and offspring of Abraham, but the king from David whose kingdom will have no end. He's, he's the one. He's, he's the one. And not only that, I think we can go even further. If you go a little bit further to verse 18, we read about this miraculous virgin birth. And so we see that not only is Christ the one from Abraham, the one from David, but in verse 18, we see that Christ is also the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. All the other Old Testament genealogies, they follow the man. They follow the male head. But here we see that Christ is born of a woman, which is what was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. Born of a virgin Mary under the law. And so the Bible from the get-go, from the New Testament, is saying, He's here. <laughs> the King is here. The Messiah is here. The Christ is here. He has come. And if you go through the first four chapters of Matthew you can see it six or seven times. Matthew keeps saying this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is that. This that the prophet spoke about has come. The, fu the fulfillment is here. And so we can see this pattern in the scriptures of promise in the Old Testament, fulfillment in the New. Shadows in the Old Testament, the substance coming in Christ. And just to drill down into this a little bit, because I think it's important for how we read the Bible and how we read the Scriptures. What Christ has come to do as the last Adam and true Israel is very important for us to see. He has come as the better Adam. He's not just a second Adam. He's a better Adam. Where Adam failed to obey God, Christ will succeed where Adam failed to represent his people, Christ will come to represent them perfectly. Where Adam succumbed to temptation from the serpent, Christ will be victorious. Same thing for Israel. Where they failed to keep the law, Christ will be obedient. Where they failed in their testing in the wilderness, Christ will pass this test. Where they disobeyed and broke the covenant, Christ will come to accomplish it and keep this covenant. And this is what we see in the first four chapters of the book of Matthew. These, these accounts that we see, if you just, just flip through the first couple chapters, what do we see? We see the birth of Christ. We see him go to Egypt. We see Herod try to kill him. We see his return to Nazareth. We see his baptism. We see his temptation. These are not just stories. These are not just a narrative telling of Jesus' life, almost like just kind of a history a documentary that you might see. 
it is showing the fulfillment of all of God's promises. What do I mean? That just as Israel was called the Son of God in the Old Testament, just as Israel was persecuted by Pharaoh, a wicked ruler, remember? And just as they were called out of Egypt, what do we see in Matthew chapter 2? Jesus also is God's eternal Son. He is also persecuted by Herod. Remember, Herod tries to kill all the newborn sons. And just like Israel, Jesus is called out of Egypt, Matthew 2, verse 15. Just like Israel passes through the waters of the Red Sea, led by the Spirit of God and tempted in the wilderness for 40 years, so also Jesus is in his baptism going through these waters of judgment. We see he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested and tempted, not by a serpent, but this time by Satan himself for 40 days. Do you see the parallels? Do you see the, 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 what the Scripture is trying to say is Jesus has come to do everything that Adam and Israel failed to do. Where they failed, Christ will obey perfectly. That's exactly what we see in the first four chapters. That the Bible is not just this tale of moral stories, a collection of how to be a better and more upright person. The book of Matthew, the book of the New Testament, the book of the Bible is about the accomplishment of salvation in the person and work of Christ. And we get even more explicit language in the Gospel of John. If you go to John chapter 4, verse 34, I love this account. (laughs) It's right after the woman of the well, and the disciples are really worried about Jesus. He looks a little hungry. And they say, Jesus, you need to eat some food. And he says, I have food that you don't know about. And they're kind of confused. They're like, is he kind of has a hidden stash somewhere? What is Jesus doing here? And he says this. He says, my food that I have is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's saying, this is what's sustaining me. Not this earthly food. My food, what's sustaining me, is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish, accomplish His work. And so we can say this, that Jesus, the Son of God, was sent on a mission by the Father. He has come to do His will and His work. He is this servant from Isaiah 42 that will come the servant of the Lord from Isaiah that's given the word and spirit without measure to come and accomplish the work of God. And part of this will we find out in John chapter 6 is to accomplish redemption for the sake of his people. What's it say in John chapter 6? I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is his will, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. That this is why Jesus has come. Jesus is not just kind of figuring it out as he goes. He is coming to accomplish redemption. He's coming to do the will of him who sent him. This is why he was sent. Or we could say it like this. We see here that his earthly mission is a carrying out of a previous heavenly commission. He's been sent by the Father to do a work. His earthly mission is not just purely earthly, it is the carrying out of a previous heavenly commission. 
And this is what we call in theology the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption, the Latin is pactum salutis. I think that's so fun to say. The pactum salutis, this covenant of redemption. This is what we mean, that in eternity past, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit covenanted together in this intra-Trinitarian covenant that the Son would come as the last Adam. He would, in His incarnation, take on human flesh and He would accomplish redemption for His people. That the Father had promised to give a people to the Son from every tribe and tongue and nation. And that He would reward the Son with resurrection and exaltation upon His obedience. And that the Spirit would empower the Son for this work. This is a Trinitarian covenant made in eternity past that God, through the Son, by the Spirit, would accomplish redemption. Why is this important? Because we can say this with confidence, that redemption is the eternal plan and purpose of the triune God. Redemption, salvation, atonement are not surprises to God. They're not plan B, as we've said many times. They are the eternal plan and purpose of God. And the work of redemption is not just Jesus. It is the work of the triune God. And this is the work that the Son is accomplishing. In John chapter 4, this is my work. This is my food. This is what I've come to do. I've come to do the will of Him who sent me. And we can talk about this in two different ways. We can talk about this work of the Son in two ways in his active obedience and in his passive obedience. This is what the accomplishment of salvation looks like. The active obedience of Christ is that he has come to secure perfect righteousness for his people. He's come that fallen men that could never attain perfect righteousness might have it through him. That his obeying of the law of God perfectly has earned eternal life and Sabbath rest that was offered to Adam, but has now been (laughs) impossible before the coming of Christ. This is his act of obedience. He's come to do what you and I every day, every moment fail to do. This is his active obedience. But not only that, he is not only the one that was perfectly righteous, in his passive obedience, he's come to suffer for our sins. That this second and last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, must not only fulfill all righteousness, but he must undergo the judgment that our sin deserves, right? Our sin deserves a punishment. It's not just a free pass. Our sin deserves the just judgment of God. And what Christ is doing in his sufferings, specifically on the cross, is taking the judgment that we deserve. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one that would be crushed for our iniquities. He is the one from Genesis 3.15 whose heel would be bruised. If you remember that in Genesis 3.15, it says that the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent would in that have his heel being bruised. He would suffer a mortal wound. And so as we come to the Gospels, as we come to the New Testament, as we come to Christ's death on the cross, it can seem to us like a loss. It can seem to us like Jesus is losing. That as Christ is on the wooden tree, stuck with a crown of thorns, being whipped, 
spit on, mocked, rejected by his people, undergoing the wrath of God to the point where he, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It appears like this is not going well. This is not going according to plan. It can feel as if the mission that Jesus was sent on has failed. But it is precisely in this suffering that the true glory of the Savior's work is revealed, that the accomplishment of redemption is now complete, and that this is the very means by which God will save his people. I loved what one pastor said, Michael Beck. He said this, It is at the very moment of Christ's crucifixion that he is now crushing the head of the serpent. (laughs) It is in his death that he is conquering. He is the true Adamic and Davidic king that conquers Satan by this very means. It is by dying on the cross that he saves us and crushes Satan, removing our sin and rebellion. And as he offers up his spirit, what happens? The temple veil is torn in two, making a way for God's sinful people to enter his holy presence. And this is amazing. As Christ is being lifted up on the tree, he becomes for us the tree of life. (laughs) An entrance made that we might eat and drink of Christ and have him the giver of true eternal life. This is what we see in the book of Revelation. We see the tree of life reappear that God's people can eat of this because of what Christ has done. This is the whole purpose of Christ's sufferings and his glory, his work and his entrance into rest. He has come to complete this work. He has come to fulfill the covenant of redemption by his sacrificial death and subsequent resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the father. He has accomplished redemption. What does he cry out on the cross? It is finished. So you might be saying to me, What does this have to do with the new covenant? What does this have to do with what we're talking about this morning? And the answer is everything. It has everything to do with the new covenant because the new covenant of grace is nothing less than the work of the covenant of redemption fulfilled and kept for us by Christ. He fulfilled this covenant of redemption, this works-based covenant, so that he could give us the benefits of his grace. That we enter now this covenant of grace, this new covenant, not by our works, not by doing more right things than wrong, but because he gives it to us by his grace. That in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. This is what God has done in Christ. This is the gospel of grace that we all believe. <laughs> We're just using covenant language to, to talk about it and to, and to clarify it, but this is the good news that we who were fallen in the first Adam, unable to save ourselves, lost and dead in our sin, might be found in the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, our new federal head, the one that perfectly represents us. And that by this faith that we have in Christ, who suffered and died, we are united to Him. We're united to Christ. This idea of union with Christ, being united to Him, 
is how we receive all the benefits that he won. What are all the blessings of this new covenant, right? That's the question. What's so great about this new covenant? What are the better promises that we read in Hebrews chapter 8? What makes it so much better? Well, we see the answer to that in those Old Testament prophecies. Forgiveness of sin, cleansing of our iniquity, the law written on our hearts, all in this covenant, knowing the Lord, our sin not being remembered, the Spirit given to us, our heart of stone removed, and a heart of flesh given. And the only way we have all these benefits is because by faith we are united to Christ. He has completed the work, and we receive it with open hands of faith. It's not us clawing after obedience to try to earn this covenant. It is open hands that say, Christ has done it all, and we receive it by faith, by grace alone. What is faith? It is receiving and resting on all that Christ has done, that by His blood and sacrifice and the pouring out of His Spirit, sinners can be made right with a holy God. He can be both just and the justifier. This is the new covenant. (laughs) This is the gospel. This is the grace that we believe in. And so we see as we continue through the scriptures that this new covenant that Christ declares at the Lord's Supper, if you remember that in Matthew, we see that this gospel, this good news is not just for the people of Israel, but we see that it goes to the nations, both Jew and Gentile. And this brings us to our third point this morning, the gospel to the nations, the gospel to the nations, that what we see in the book of Acts following the gospels is that this new covenant, this gospel that's being proclaimed is what is going out. It is what is spreading. It says the word increased. This is the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples in the great commission, that the church is commissioned to preach this gospel, to bring this good news to the world made up of both Jew and Gentile. And by means of this proclamation, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of this new covenant, this is how Christ is going to build his church. This is how saints are going to be made. This is how sinners are going to be made right with God. There's not another way. You don't see Peter doing different things. He preaches Christ. He preaches him crucified. He preaches this gospel of the kingdom that those who were not saved, were in darkness, might be brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the new creation that's been inaugurated, it's been brought into existence in the hearts of God's people, and will be consummated at the end of all things. This is the gospel that goes to the nations. And just to kind of highlight this for a moment, this is not a new thing. (laughs) In the book of Acts, the gospel going to the nations is not a new thing. And we've seen that as we've gone through the Bible, and I hope I've brought that out. What did we see in after Noah? That Japheth, the, the Gentiles, will dwell in the tents of Shem, the, in the Israelites. We saw that the offspring of Abraham, right, will bless the nations. The promise is already there. And what do we see in Acts with the tongues of fire and all the languages? We see a reversal of Babel that once was limited to the people of Israel is now going out to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, and that this lampstand of the church has been lit. It's been filled and fueled by the Spirit of God, 
and has given it strength for its mission to preach the gospel and that this was always God's plan. It's not another plan. It's the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. And hopefully we see that today. So as we close this morning and as we try to apply this book and maybe even as we step back from this whole series and we try to understand what is God doing in the scriptures? What is this, this plan that God has from Genesis to Revelation? And we see this. We see first that from the beginning, the promise has always been about Christ and his church. And I basically just said that, but just to reiterate it, the promise has always been about Christ and his church. And that these Old Testament covenants that we've taken so much time to look at are not separated and unrelated to what God is doing, but they point forward to the fulfillment of all things in Christ in this new covenant that the covenant of works shows us our need for the seed of the woman, for one that will perfectly obey the second Adam that will enter God's Sabbath rest. This is what Christ has done. The Abrahamic covenant shows us the need for one that will bless the nations who will go the way of blood, going the way of judgment, and take the covenant curses upon himself. The Mosaic Covenant shows us our need for a perfect sacrifice, for a perfect substitute so that we can enter God's holy presence. The Davidic Covenant shows us the need for the true king, the one that can subdue his enemies and uh, rule his people, build the true temple, the house of the Lord, the church of the living God. And so these Old Testament saints that we read about in Hebrews, right? Abraham by faith. Moses, by faith, these Old Testament saints were not looking to something other than Christ. They were looking to Christ. What does it say in John 8? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Abraham was looking to Christ as all the other Old Testament saints were. They received the benefits of Christ's redemption retroactively. In the past, even though it hadn't happened yet, God is able to work through the promises, through the types. When the people saw the sacrifices, when God's believers in the Old Testament saw the sacrifices, they saw, this is not enough. This blood of this animal, this goat, is bo- this bull is not going to be able to take away my sins. I need something more than this. I need something that's like this, but yet is unlike this. And that's what Christ has done. He is the fulfillment of the sacrifices. His blood cleanses our us of our conscience, of our sin. He cleanses us. And so it's clear that there, um, sorry, I lost my place here, that the Old Testament saints looked forward to Christ. We look back to the redemption that he accomplished. One other thing, one other point to make about this idea of the new covenant is that this changes how we see the people of God and the signs of the covenant. This changes how we see the people of God and the signs of the covenant, that there is one people of God. There's not multiple people of God. There is one people of God made up of Jew and Gentile, elect of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. There is one people of God. That in reality, it's always been about faith, not the flesh. It's always been about being a Jew inwardly, as Paul says, not only externally. It's been always about the circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of the flesh internally, not the cutting away of the flesh 
externally. It's always been about being born again by the Spirit, not being born into a certain family or race. This is what we're saying. And so what that means is that the types have fallen away in this new covenant, right? The types and the shadows have fallen away. And if that is true, it is only those who are united to Christ by faith that are children of the new creation that are members of his church, that are members of his body. And if that's true, it is only those who are partakers of this new covenant that are to receive the signs and sacraments of the New Testament, baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's only those that have trusted in Christ, that have faith in Him, that are to receive baptism and the Lord's Supper, the visible promises of the covenant. Remember all the other signs in the Old Testament. Noah had a rainbow. Abraham had circumcision. They were all signs that showed us the promises of the covenant. The same thing is true in baptism and the Lord's Supper. It is God declaring all who are in His Son are new creations. They've been buried with Him in His death and resurrection, and they have true forgiveness of sins. We see this in baptism, and we see this in the Lord's Supper. It's God's Word to His people. And it's also His people professing faith in that promise. So you don't get someone to come to the table. You don't get someone to go to baptism that's not trusting in that promise. That's why we're Baptists, okay? (laughs) This is why, because we're saying, I trust that promise. That thing that the sign and sacrament points to, baptism and the Lord's Supper, it points to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's what I'm trusting in. I'm not trusting in anything else. That's where my confidence lies. I believe that promise. And so this changes how we see the signs of the covenant. It changes how we administer this. I liked what one person said. This new covenant has an eschatological administration. We are basing it off the new birth, the new creation, not the old. And finally, my last point this morning is that because of this new covenant, because of the fulfillment in Christ, as believers, as Christians, we have true assurance. We read this in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, an assurance that's gone through into the inner place of the heavenly temple, this anchor that is our true assurance because Christ was the perfect perfect covenant keeper. You and I, if it was based on us, we're going to break the covenant. (laughs) Just like the people in the Old Testament, just like Adam, we're going to break the covenant. We're going to violate it. We're going to transgress God's law. But because it is not based on our obedience, but Christ, he is the perfect perfect covenant keeper. And this covenant is unbreakable. (laughs) All that are in this covenant cannot be cut off cannot be um, abandoned. We believe in the perseverance of the saints that by faith we are trusting in Christ alone and he will preserve us to the end. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as we go about our day? Because what happens? Our sin is ever before us. It's right there in front of our faces. And Satan tries to accuse us and say, you are not worthy. And we can say, you're right. (laughs) I am not worthy, but Christ is. When we fall into sin, when we fall into temptation, when we struggle with our sin, we have the Spirit of God given to us to strengthen us, to remind us of the covenant promises that Christ has done it all and that He has given us power by His Spirit to walk in His statutes. And when we feel like the wrath of God is still hanging on us because of our sin, 
We can go to the cross. We can go to Christ who has had the wrath of God poured out on him. And he's drank that cup of wrath to the bottom. There's no more wrath left for us. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And I love this song. We sing it sometimes before the throne. He says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We don't deserve that, but God has given us given us that in his covenant promises. So let's look to the new covenant this morning, this covenant fulfilled in Christ, given to us by the gospel. We participate that, to participate with that by union with Christ, and we receive all the benefits that he has won. This is our hope. Let's pray this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for um, Christ, for sending him in the fullness of time taking on our flesh, taking on our weakness, and on the cross, taking upon himself our sin, so that we might be made right with you, that the righteous one would be offered up for the unrighteous. And this morning, this is our, this is our assurance that we have made a way not because of our works, but a way has been made because of Christ. And so this morning, we come resting on those covenant promises that we see physically in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, that those that, that go under the waters are saying, I've died with Christ and I've been raised again to newness of life. Those that come to the table are saying, Christ's body has been broken. His blood has been poured out and spilled on me so that he, death might pass over me and that I might have forgiveness of my sins, past, present, and future. And so this morning, Lord, we, we look to this new covenant in Christ. We look to the fulfillment of all your promises. And we ultimately look to the new heavens and the new earth where all will be made right, where the blessing of resurrection will be given to your people. We will be glorified, unable to sin, unable to fall, and we will be made right with you forever. We look forward to this. We trust in your promises. And even though everything in this world tells us that they're not true, we look to heaven itself this morning, the heavenly promised land, the land of Canaan, and we trust in your promises this morning. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. If you want to, um, uh, we come now to the time of our service where we participate in the Lord's Supper that we've been talking about, this covenant meal for God's covenant people, that it is a sign of this new covenant that Christ's body was really and truly broken on the cross. He was whipped and beaten for us. He took the wrath of God for our sin and that his blood was poured out so that we might be cleansed. This blood of the new covenant. And so we're saying that this is really and truly a means of grace. It's a physical picture of the promises of this covenant that as surely as we break and eat the bread by faith, Christ's body was broken for us. As surely as we pour and drink the wine by faith, Christ's blood was poured out for our forgiveness. He did this for us and for our salvation. And so we're looking to Christ. We're, we're zeroing in on Him and His work. And so if you're a believer this morning if you've been baptized and are a part of his church, then this is for you, right? Because we're saying, I believe that promise. I need help. I'm a sinner. I'm weak. I'm frail. I need help. And that's what we're doing when we come to the supper. And if you're not a believer, and if you're not um, 
trusting in Christ this morning, then we ask that you abstain, that you, um, that you just sit and contemplate. And the reason for that is because Paul gives very strong language for those that come to the table in an unworthy manner. Um, he says they eat and drink judgment upon themselves, that we don't want sort of a dead ceremonialism where we just go through the motions. We want true faith to be present, and that's what we're looking to in these things. They're not just empty acts we are saying, I'm believing in the promises of the new covenant. And so when we come to this, we're examining ourselves. We're, we're confessing our sins that we've committed over this past week, or maybe even this morning, and we're, re- we're confessing them. We're examining ourselves, but we're also rejoicing that God has done it all, that He has done everything that we could not, that it is finished, that Christ has completed the work, and we can rest in His promises. And so each week, we remember the words of institution that Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body that is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This blood, this, this cup is, represents my blood, this blood of the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is our hope this morning. Um, let's pray for the supper. Lord, we thank you for this meal. Um, that just as this day is the Lord's day, your day, the first day of the week, the day of your resurrection, the day of your eternal rest, We come now to this supper that is yours, the Lord's Supper, this table of communion, where we not only um, commune and fellowship with one another by joining together and eating together, but we are also communing with you, the triune God of the universe. And so we pray this morning that as we come to the table, you would bless these elements to the nourishment of our souls, just as the physical elements nourish our physical bodies, that this morning you would nourish our very souls, that we would feed on Christ and Him crucified, that we would eat and drink of Him, the tree of life, the one that has come to do everything that we could not. And as we come and as we eat and as we drink, may our faith be strengthened. May we know that it is not by our deeds, but by yours, O Christ. That is how we are made right. Help us trust in those promises this morning, and we pray that you would bless this meal. In your name we pray. Amen.